There was once uh, a little old man. Uh, his, he was so old that his uh, hands would often tremble and when he ate he would uh, clatter the crockery and the cutlery and he frequently uh, missed his mouth with his spoon and uh, he would often dribble uh, bits of food onto the tablecloth. Now this old man, he lived with his uh, married son and obviously his daughter-in-law and uh, he didn't have anywhere else to live but his, uh, his son's wife didn't much like the arrangement. Uh, I can't have this, she said after he uh, clattered the crockery once again. And so she and her husband took the old man gently but firmly by the arm and they led him to the corner of the kitchen. Uh, they sat him down on a stool and gave him food in an earthenware bowl. Uh, from then on, he always ate in the corner. But one day his hands trembled more than usual and the earthenware bowl fell and broke. And in fury, his daughter-in-law called him a pig and told him that from now on he must eat out of a trough. So they made him a little wooden trough and he got his meals in that. Now the couple had a four-year-old son uh, who they were very fond of. And one evening... Uh, the husband noticed his boy was playing intently with some bits of wood. And his father asked him, what are you doing? And the boy responded, I'm making a trough, he said, smiling up for approval, to feed you and mummy out of when I get big. (laughs) The man and his wife looked at each other for a while and didn't say anything. Then they they went to the corner, took the old man by the arm, and they led him back to the table. Now that four-year-old taught his parents a very important lesson, a lesson about showing honour. In this case, showing honour to parents, showing honour to those who are older than we are, at least. And that really is the theme of this next section of Peter's letter, the importance for believers to show honour. Uh, you may have noticed what Paul wrote in verses, uh, sorry, Peter wrote in verses 11 and 12. Uh, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honourable among the Gentiles. Peter gives two instructions in those verses. He says that we are to resist evil desires, the evil desires that we all have. We're to resist those and we're to show honour to all sorts of different people. Uh, In a few weeks' time, we'll look more in more detail at that first instruction to resist evil desires, which Peter talks more about in chapter 3 and 4. Uh, But for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this instruction of Peter's that we show honour to all people. He sums it up in verse 17. Uh, Peter says, Honour all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honour the king. And throughout these chapters, end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3, Peter gives different types of people we should show honour to. 
Uh, He describes how employees should show honour to employers. He shows how wives should show honour to husbands and husbands should show honour to wives. And he talks about how believers should show honour to other believers. And ultimately, as verse 17 says, how we in many different ways should show honour to others. But he starts uh, in a very uh, unpopular place. Uh, Because in the verses we're looking at this morning, he teaches us how we should show honour to those who have authority over us, how we should show honour to government. And that's the theme for this morning, uh, how we should honour the people who rule us. You know, some Christians uh, find it easy to say uh, vile things about lots of different kinds of people. And a lot of the reason is because Christians make the mistake that showing honour means agreeing with or means supporting or means commending. But it doesn't mean that. Uh, You can show honour to someone who you don't agree with. Uh, You can show honour to someone whose behaviour you don't commend. Uh, You can show honour towards someone with whom you don't approve. Because honour does not mean agreement. And that means we can even show honour to government even when we do not agree with them. Uh, There's a very interesting account in the book of Jude, one of the shortest books in the Bible. Uh, It's the second to last book of the Bible. And in that letter, Jude talks about a very obscure story about the archangel Michael and how he spoke about Satan. Now, you can't get more evil than Satan, can you? The devil himself. If there's anyone you could uh, speak harshly about, surely it's the devil. And yet Jude points out that Michael, when he spoke to the devil... It's an obscure story, which we won't go into this morning. But when Michael spoke to the devil, he told him, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael did not take it on himself to rebuke Satan. He did not take it on himself to rebuke Satan, who was, after all, when he was originally created, one of God's greatest creations. Even Michael, the archangel, showed If honour's not the right word, he showed an awareness that we need to be careful how we speak to others, even the devil himself. Honour does not necessarily mean agreements. And so Peter tells us very clearly in verse 13 and verse 14, he says, Therefore, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. Peter doesn't leave any wiggle room here. He says, we should show honour. We should submit to every ordinance. Ordinance is simply just a law, a rule made by a government. We should submit to every ordinance of man 
for the Lord's sake, whether to a king or to a governor, whether to the prime minister or whether to a local council, we should show honour and respect and submission to them. And Peter gives us three reasons. Uh, Peter gives three reasons why we should honour government. And for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to look at those three reasons to hopefully help us understand better the importance of submitting to our government. And the first reason is the simplest one. And the first reason is simply because God commands it. The first reason we should submit to government is because God commands it. Look again at verse 13. He says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. The reason we should submit to government is not for their sake, not because they're wonderful, not because they're great, not because they're so wise, but for the Lord's sake, for God's sake, because that's what he asks of us. And it's written many times in the New Testament. And I noticed actually that uh, I think I've I've spoken on this topic two or three times in uh, recent months. And that's not deliberate. It's just because it's written so many times in the New Testament that it just comes up. A lot. Uh, Jesus taught it in Matthew 22, 21. Paul taught it in Romans 13, verse 1. Peter teaches it here in 1 Peter 2, 13. And Paul teaches it again in Titus 3, verse 1. There's no escaping it. God considers it important that we show appropriate respect to government. But, you know, there are some Christians uh, who say, but surely, surely we're not of this world, Uh, We belong to a higher kingdom. We belong to Christ's kingdom. And Christ is our king. So why should we submit to some human government when we have a greater king? And the Bible does say that. Uh, The Bible does say that we have a better king. Uh, We have a greater king, King Jesus. And we do belong, if we're a Christian, to a different kingdom. But it's interesting, every time... The Bible teaches that. It actually gives the opposite implication. Not, therefore, we should not obey, but, therefore, we should obey government. Because we are part of Christ's kingdom, because Christ is our king, therefore, we should obey government because that is what our king requires of us. Do you see how the logic is different? Jesus says, I want you to submit to government. He says, you are free. You do belong to a different kingdom. You belong to a kingdom which will never pass away. But don't use your freedom to rebel. Use your freedom to submit. That's exactly what Peter says in verse 16. He says, as free, so live as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. We're free, but we should use our freedom to willingly choose to submit to government. That's why Jesus taught what he did in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said to his disciples, if a soldier compels you to go one mile, go with him two. And what he was teaching there is, You might be compelled to go one mile, so do your mile, 
but go over and above. Go over and above what is required of you. Go the second mile as well. And he said, this is the way we shine like lights in this world. Not by rebelling and insulting and ridiculing, but by going even beyond what is expected of us. Now, having said that, we need to make clear what this does not mean. Uh, This does not mean that if a government tells us to do something which God forbids, that we must do it. Because, of course, that would make a nonsense of Peter's argument here, wouldn't it? Uh, Peter says we should obey government for the Lord's sake. So it would make no sense if we ended up obeying government and ended up disobeying God. No, there's an order here. God is supreme, then government, then us. And we always listen to the higher authority. So when government does not contradict God, we submit to government. When government does contradict God, we follow God and not government. As the apostles themselves said, it's better for us to obey God than man. So in the Second World War, when Jews were rounded up and taken to concentration camps, uh, you couldn't as a Christian say, well, we're just doing what the government says. No, God condemns murder. He condemns uh, kidnapping, man-stealing. He condemns that sort of cruelty. And in those circumstances, we obey God rather than man. But thankfully, those situations are comparatively rare. Uh, unfortunately, uh, obeying the speed limit doesn't contradict any of God's laws. Um, parking restrictions do not, as far as I'm aware. Perhaps there might be some obscure instance where it does. But generally, it does not disobey God's laws. And so Peter's clear. We must submit for the Lord's sake. No matter how much we disagree, no matter how irritating we might find the law, as long as it does not contradict God, we obey for the Lord's sake. So that's the first reason. Now, the first reason we obey is because it is what God commands us to do. But there's a second reason. And Peter gives us a second reason in verse 14. Uh, he says, uh, I'll read from verse 13. He says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king of supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Peter says there in verse 14 that we should obey government because God has given them, God has appointed them to reward good and punish evil. That's the purpose which government is supposed to exist for. They have a God-appointed purpose. And that means that if we undermine the authority of government, if we choose to go our own way and ignore what government says, we're actually undermining a system that God put in place for good and to fight evil. Now, you might object and say, well, um, the government isn't doing a very great job of doing that. Perhaps we can point to all sorts of instances where the government isn't rewarding good and they're not punishing evil. Perhaps they're rewarding evil and punishing good. But be careful. 
Uh, be careful of taking the law into your own hands. Because what's happened throughout history is when people have tried that, they've ended up just making things worse than they were before. I don't know if you've ever read the book Animal Farm uh, by George Orwell. And it's uh, a book about a farm with a lot of farmyard animals who rebel against their farmer. Um, and it's a uh, not particularly well-hidden uh, allegory of the Russian Revolution. Uh, George Orwell um, made that clear, uh, the man who wrote the book. And in this book, the farmyard animals who are being oppressed and are being uh, hurt by their farmer decide to rise up in rebellion. And they win. Uh, they win the revolution. They take over, and they take over the farm, and they cha- chase out, I think it's Farmer Jones, I think his name is, and he's chased out of the farm, and they set up a new system. And they initially start off with great wolves, wonderful wolves which they all agree with. But then the pigs start to gain more power, and the wolves slowly start to change. And most famously of all, uh, the rule which said all animals are equal is changed to all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. (laughs) And in the story, uh, the pigs basically end up creating a greater tyranny than the previous farmer ever had. And the book ends with the line that the farm animals look in through the kitchen window where the pigs are making a deal with the previous farmers. And it says the animals looked from one to the other. They looked from the pigs to the farmers and the farmers to the pigs, and they could no longer tell which was which. And the tragedy is that is what so often happens in human history. People think they can solve the problem. They raise a rebellion. They raise a revolution. And the cycle just continues again. Uh, We need to be very slow to trust our own ability to create a better system. Um, This is why God teaches us the importance of submitting to government. Again, not disobeying him, but submitting to the powers that be. Look at it this way. Uh, you may not like the speed limit. I don't know why I keep picking on that, perhaps because I've broken the speed limit on several occasions. But you may not like the speed limit. But would you really like it if everyone decided to take the speed limit into their own hands? You might say, in your particular example, it's fine. But what if everyone did that? You can imagine the anarchy. You can imagine the danger that would happen. That's what happens when we undermine government. Instead, we need to use legitimate channels. Uh, We can lawfully protest. We can write to MPs. We live in a democracy, which means that we can write petitions, and those petitions get listened to if enough signatures are found. These are the means we should use as believers. You might say, well, that's very boring. (laughs) That's a very boring way to live. Well, perhaps it is, but it's the right way. It's the way which God has appointed. The alternative is to raise a revolution. But be careful. You may actually set up something much worse than what you are rebelling against. Again, a famous uh, film has the line in it. uh, You either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Slightly cynical line, but there's truth in it. Uh, We are sinful people. Ultimately, only God 
will bring about a perfect government. Only God can rule perfectly. And one day he will. The Bible says Jesus is going to return one day and he's going to make all things new. Until then, government is going to be imperfect. It's going to make mistakes. It's going to fail in many different ways. But nevertheless, we can set our hope on a king who is coming. That is King Jesus. In the meantime, we meddle with government at our peril. So that's the second reason we should obey government, because they are God's appointed way to reward good and punish evil. But that leads to the third and last way, the third and last reason we should obey government. Look at verse 15. Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. This is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, the world's way of thinking, our natural way of thinking, is the way we fight against something we don't like is by ridiculing it, uh, is by insulting it, is by resisting it. This is the way our minds naturally think. If we don't like something, we've got to attack it. But Peter says, no, that's not the way we defeat evil. He says, this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to the silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter Peter doesn't deny that governments can be foolish. Peter doesn't deny that prime ministers and ministers and councillors can be incredibly foolish people and make very bad choices. Peter says that. He He mentions the ignorance of foolish men. But we resist that, not by doing evil, but by doing good. You don't fight fire with fire. You just get more fire. You fight fire with water. That is how we defeat evil. Uh, That's uh, a good example of this in the Old Testament. You might remember the story of Saul and David. Uh, King David was God's anointed king, but at the time there was another king, King Saul. And you might have thought David had every reason to resist Saul and to fight against Saul, but he refused to do so. And David fled into the wilderness because Saul wanted to kill him. And he spent many years running away from King Saul until one day Saul entered into the cave unknowingly where David was, David and his men. And the Bible um, says that Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. And while he's defenseless, David's men, seeing Saul nudge him and say, this is your opportunity. Kill Saul while you have the chance. Look, God has delivered him into your hands. And we're told that David goes up behind Saul while he's distracted, and he cuts the little corner of his robe. But even then, after he's done that, it says David's heart smote him. His conscience struck him. He thought, I never should have touched, even touched God's anointed king, who Saul was at that point. And he was felt guilty that he had even just cut the corner of Saul's robe. And he refused to kill King Saul because he was the one who was king at that moment. Uh, story goes on and uh, Saul leaves the cave and David calls out after him once Saul is at a safe distance. 
And um, David cries out to Saul and says, look, Saul, I could have killed you. He shows him the piece of robe in his hand. And he said, I could have killed you many times over, but I let you live. I don't want to harm you. Why do you want to harm me? And Saul turns to David and he says, you are more righteous than I. That's how good overcomes evil, by putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We show up the evil of others by greater good ourselves. Let's just be really clear here. Uh, When Peter is given this instruction and when Jesus gives similar instructions to us, uh, he's talking to the church. Uh, He's not talking to government itself. Uh, If an enemy invades this country, uh, the government doesn't turn the other cheek. (laughs) That would be the worst response for a government to do. The Bible tells us that government has been given the sword by God. Government has the authority to administer justice. Government has the authority to defend this nation. The church hasn't been given that authority. We don't take justice into our own hands. And what that means is is that we are free to do good. We are free to show mercy. We can leave justice to government. We can leave justice to God himself, who one day will make all wrongs right. That's why God himself said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And this frees us up to do good, even to our enemies, to show mercy, to show grace, to show kindness. That's the way God wants us to live, because it's the way Christ lived when he was on earth. And we'll come to these verses in later weeks. Uh, But listen to what Peter says in verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying Jesus didn't claim his own rights. Jesus himself submitted to government. And if he hadn't have done, where would we be? We wouldn't have a saviour, because Jesus would never have gone to the cross. Uh, He even told Pontius Pilate, I think it was Pontius Pilate, uh, he said to them, I could call down ten legions of angels to rescue me. And yet he didn't. He submitted to his father's will. And as a result, we can be saved today if we trust in him. Jesus overcame evil with good, not by claiming his rights, but by relinquishing his rights for the greater good. God has given authority to government, and we should let them administer the justice. Sometimes that means we will have to give people over to the police. Sometimes that means we will have to uh, let the police follow the course of 
justice. That is the right thing to do. But we must never take justice into our own hands. That is a recipe for disaster. Instead, where it is at all possible, we show mercy and grace to others. And in that way, we shine like a light in this world. Because that's so rare, isn't it? Uh, It's not difficult to find people who ridicule government. It's not difficult to find people who uh, insult government. It's on pretty much every TV program, on on the TV, on news, wherever it is. That's not shining like a light. That's just being like everyone else. But we can shine like lights by showing honour where other people show dishonour, by submitting when other people resist. In that way, we can show people a better way. I just want to close uh, by reading a little story um, which illustrates this principle. And it's a story from Richard Vernbrand. I've, I've often quoted him. He was a pastor in Romania during uh, the communist regime there. And he uh, wrote a book, this book called... Um, oh, well, <laughs> got the top of it's missing. Um, but it's about God's Underground, I think it's called. And in this book, he describes his experiences in prison under the communist regime. He speaks of a man uh, he met there, an unbeliever called Joseph in the prison. And uh, he describes how Joseph became a believer. And he says this, uh, he says, Joseph was shivering in his new shirt, which was already growing threadbare. I took the woolen jacket which my relatives had sent and tore out the lining for myself. I persuaded him to take the jacket. He clasped his arms over his narrow chest to show how warm he was. Joseph's conversion began on that day, yet something was needed to lift him into faith. It happened during the distribution of the bread rations. They were laid in rows on a table each morning. Each portion was supposed to be three and a half ounces, but some were a shade larger, some smaller. There were often disagreements over whose turn it was for first choice and quarrels over who had to be last. Men asked each other's advice, which was the biggest portion left? Having acted on it, they suspected they were being misled, and friendships turned sour over a mouthful of black bread. When a surly prisoner called Trailescu tried to cheat me, Joseph was watching. I told Trailescu, take mine too. I know how hungry you are. He shrugged and stuffed the bread into his mouth. We sat translating New Testament verses into English that evening, and Joseph said, we have read nearly everything Jesus said now, but still I wonder what he was like to know as a man. I said, I'll tell you. When I was in room four, one of the rooms of the prison, there was a pastor who would give away everything he had, his last bit of bread, his medicine, the coat from his back. I have given these things also sometimes when I wanted them for myself. But at other times when men were hungry and sick and in need, I could be very quiet. I didn't care. This other pastor was really Christ-like. You felt that just the touch of his hand could heal and calm. One day he talked to a small group of prisoners and one asked him the question you have just asked me. What is Jesus like? I've never met anyone like the man you describe, so good and loving and truthful. And the pastor replied in a moment of great courage, simply and humbly, Jesus is like me. And the man, who had often received kindness from the pastor, answered, If Christ was like you, then I love him. The times when one may say such a thing as that, Joseph, are very rare. But to me, that is what it means to be Christian. To believe in him is not such a great thing. To become like him is truly great.
And Joseph responded, Pastor, if Jesus is like you, then I love him too. There was innocence and peace in his gaze. Do you see? When we act in a very small, relatively insignificant way like Christ, when we don't lay claim to our own rights, but give up our rights for the good of others, it's seen by others. People look at that and see Christ in us, and they are drawn to him, which is exactly what Peter says in verse 12. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may... By your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's why we should honour government. Not because they deserve it, not because uh, they are so wonderful, but because we want to be like Christ and we want to shine like lights in this dark world. And that's why I've chosen as our final hymn, a hymn which expresses that same desire. Number 607. May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. So we'll close by singing 607.